0: Are you looking for the best tips and tricks to run a successful dental practice? You're in the right place. Welcome to Bulletproof Dental Practice, interviewing some of today's most successful dentists with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Bulletproof Dental Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Craig Spodak, and I got our other host, Dr. Peter Bolden, and my very good personal friend, Mr. Chuck Blakeman, world-renowned author, and uh, someone that I'm very honored to call a friend on the show today. So welcome, Chuck, and welcome, Dr. Bolden.
1: Thank you, buddy.
2: Thank you so much. Great to be with you guys.
0: So a little background. Chuck wrote um, two books. Uh, The first book was uh, Why Making Money is Killing Your Business. Uh, interesting title and the minute someone gave it to me I'm like, oh my God, just by the title, I'll make this book was written for me. And then his the successor to that book, I got that right. That was the second book now. Uh, yeah, uh, why, the
2: second book yeah the second book is why employees are always a bad idea.
0: And that's just what a wonderful title because the first book, Why Making Money's Killing Your Business, is a wonderful spin on this idea that the more you spend time on the urgent, the urgent things in your business always make the most noise. Someone leaves, the toilet breaks, all that stuff that makes a ton of noise. It creates a disaster for your operations. But the most important thing in your business is the silent stuff, the strategic drive, the the things that need to be corrected are always quiet until they become urgent. So, it's an absolutely wonderful read. The fact that it says business and not practice. Don't let that uh, sway you in any way. It's majorly applicable to dentistry. And, uh, it was, it was just an absolute gift when someone gave that to me. And then I got to meet Chuck and I felt like I was, uh, Um, meeting my childhood sports hero because that book felt like (laughs) it was written for me and I literally felt like a a church experience from that I literally felt like it was in church it was speaking directly to me and uh, of course the next book why employees are was a bad idea great book as well because employees suck and we always talk about that and we don't want any more employees but we do want people who have their brains turned on we want human beings who are creative we want stakeholders so he's right employees are a bad idea but holders people that care about your business and treat it like their own is a great idea. So Chuck, let's just dive right in. I don't want to chew up all this and you you guys know me I can talk my ass off. So <laughs> Chuck, wh- why dentistry? That's the first thing. Talk to me about why would a guy like you who works with so many different businesses and so many different industries, why dentistry?
2: That's a great question. I've I've built businesses uh, in 10 uh, in seven different industries, 10 different businesses in seven different industries on three continents. And uh, the reality of it is about 70% of business is, uh, I don't want to say generic, but it's similar. Mm -hmm. We all have sales. We all have advertising. We all have marketing. We all have uh, uh, administration, finance, operations, all these things that that are similar for all of us. And... I learned in being in so many different industries that the problems were pretty much the same across industries because it had nothing to do or very little, almost nothing to do with the craft itself and almost everything to do with the way human beings work and the way they work in their business and and you could be making toilet paper or you could be doing heart surgery and the business issues are going to be nearly identical and and having started 10 businesses in seven industries i think i've i've seen that happen we got into dentistry about five years ago six years ago because we got invited invited to speak to a dental conference somebody read my first book missed their plane and posted that, that uh, somebody in the dental industry who said, hey, I was so engrossed in this book, I, I looked around, and, and there's nobody left, it, it had left an hour earlier, and and so other people picked it up, and we got invited to speak, and off we went, and I found that there was an incredible s- synergy between us and dentistry, and we focus on nothing but dentistry now, we, that is our vertical, that's what we intended to give our lives to, and have been for quite a few years now, and Uh, It just It's a great match because we find that dentists really need to get off the treadmill and they really need a better understanding. I think you get like three hours worth of how to run a business in the hundreds of hours of clinical when you're in dental school. And 70% of what they're stuck with when they get out is a business proposition, not a, a dental proposition. So we want to help them with that and help them get off the treadmill and actually be free to do the things they love.
0: That's awesome and uh, as far as like feeling equipped to move into the dental space because I know a lot of the people that are listening to this, everybody wants to know just the process. Like we were talking earlier, I was was talking to Chuck because in full disclosure, I've hired Chuck to work for my practice so he consults for my practice and we were talking about the process and everybody wants the the marketing message. They want the widget to how to become successful and dentists are especially – guilty of that. They won't listen to it. well are you a dentist? Do you know what you're talking about? And and how did you bridge that gap? Cuz you you probably get that all the time from dentists saying like, sure. "Well, you're not a dentist. Do you work with our dental practice? How are you applicable to dentistry?"
2: Yeah, how can you get me when you're not one of me? I, it's interesting. I I've, I've heard that a number of times from dentists. I've also heard it from people who run software companies, people who run mail companies, people who are... It doesn't matter. We all think that what we do is highly specific and unique, and unless you understand my craft, you can't help me with my business. But I think my background in 10 different businesses in so many different industries helps dispel that. And, uh, yeah, the reality of it is dentists, uh, dentists, the dental... Mindset, it's a craftsperson's mindset that says, if I'm a great dentist, I'll somehow get business. But the other part of this is so much more important. It's the, the, the human side and the business side that we don't get help with that really needs our attention. So we've, we've built enough of a, of a track record now. We could just help them. We could give people references of, of dentists who have, who have hired us to help them with their business and as a result they have better lives they have better uh, purpose uh, their people are happier their retention uh, is higher they hire, have higher profits higher revenues or higher uh, yeah, higher revenues higher profits faster growth because they're figuring out how to actually relate better to the business side of dentistry and i'm not saying i want to turn dentists into business people that is not our intent we want to find out what each dentist loves doing and what they're really good at, what would be what we call the highest and best use of their time and their input. And then let's get them doing that. What if, what if every dentist was doing the thing they love? We've worked with some multi-location practices where the 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 dentist who owned them didn't want to do dentistry anymore he wanted to be a a leader and a ceo so we helped them do that and we've worked with others that they just want to be in the chair they don't actually want to be the one leading the business side so we help them figure that out and get them where they need to be when you when you figure out what is the highest and best use of your time then we can help you figure out how to get to the other piece of that
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how many how many dentists think that they know exactly what they want, and it's usually I want a big practice, I want to make lots of money, and they wind up getting there, and they're consumed by it. And I know um, let let's talk about the idea that that people think that a business, um, as you go on, you spend more time to make more money, and how that's not sustainable. So the treadmill concept that you refer to a lot.
2: Sure, yeah. There's all kinds of goofy things that the Industrial Age taught us. We got some great toys. All the great technology came out of the Industrial Age, and so we tend to worship it because we look back and say, look at all the incredible stuff we got from the Industrial Age. But if you look at the human condition that came out of the Industrial Age, it was a train wreck. Uh, there's nothing to be said positively about what it did to work it dehumanized work it created a top-down militaristic style way of doing business that that uh, takes people's brains away from them one of the things it did was it taught us the assumption that bigger is better and that if i make a bucket load of money i will somehow be happy so i need a giant practice and if i get that my life will be good so it's, it was one of the – we call it the eight business diseases of the industrial age, and one of them is separation of work and uh, and play or work and, and private life. It's a false separation, but it, it, it's an assumption that, that I can have this millions of dollars over here and then somehow get a private life that works. And we regularly work with dentists who uh, chased the dream, got the big practice, and have no life. They can't remember their kids' names. They barely know who their life is. Uh, they're on a treadmill. And the problem is when you build a bigger practice, if you do it wrong, all you do is build a faster treadmill. We want to teach them the practice owner's game. And the practice owner's game is really simple. One objective, let's break the old industrial age mold, which assumed that you trade time for money. The only way to make more money is to trade more time. That was an industrial age assumption, and it's not the truth. We want to play this game. How do I make more money in less time? And the objective should lead us to every, uh, as the dentist continues to grow their practice, they have less need to be in the practice, and the practice continues to grow. And we can give uh, example after example of, of businesses and practices we've helped where that's The case. So that's our objective. Let's figure out how to get them to where they have both time and money. We were taught that the only thing we can demand from our practice is money. That is not the truth. We need to demand both time and money. And when you begin to intend to get both, your life changes.
0: That's so true. And um, it always goes back to this concept of the be do have, you know, or the have do be. We're, We're stuck. There's a sickness in America. Um, it's the hedonic treadmill. It's just a little bit more, a little bit more, like you say. Uh, you make more money, you have a bigger mortgage payment, and you uh – you survive that um, dilemma. Then you make a little bit more money. You trade up for a bigger house and a helicopter and make that payment. But this idea that more will create a more happiness right. is really false. We, we know from statistics that the, up to seventy or $80,000, there is a proportional relationship for each dollar made and increased right. levels of happiness. But after that 75000 seventy five to, to $80,000, That level of happiness diminishes with each additional dollar. And as dentists, you know, to be top 1% in the US today, I think it's like 350 or 380. We have a lot of dentists that are listening that are at that or above it and, uh, reporting very low levels of satisfaction and fulfillment. Um, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting concept.
2: Well, let's talk about that for a second though. Where did that come from that we, you know, that we end up the more money we get, the more hostage, the more trapped we feel in, in too many cases. Again, that that's a an artifact of the Industrial Age. Uh, we were taught to chase the stuff. The uh, bumper sticker in the 80s coming out of the Industrial Age was, He who dies with the most toys wins. I remember that one. It's, the, it's my, the toys. My
1: dad actually yeah. had that T-shirt, I think.
2: Did he, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so it was the toys that were supposed to make us happy. The house, the helicopter, the money, the golf course, uh, the vacations. That's the stuff. But what is stuff? It's a resource. And the question is, why do you have the helicopter? Why do you have the house? Why do you have the vacation? Why? We weren't allowed to answer the why. We were stripped of our why. We call it the big why. The industrial age could not afford for somebody putting a nut in a bolt to ask the question, why? Because if they did, the likelihood likelihood is that they would stop putting the nut in the bolt and they would give their life to something more meaningful. We've got to figure – got to refigure this out and, and, and transform the way we think about the stuff. There's a level above the stuff. The hierarchy is this. What is – what why are you in dentistry and not just why are you in dentistry the first question is why are you in life what do you want out of your life if once you figure that out then you say what kind of practice do i need to build to give me that kind of life and then you say what kind of stuff do i need to support that lifestyle so the ideal lifestyle was what we were taught to pursue in the industrial age that's the stuff time and money those are two resources we were taught to chase in the industrial age and they're simply resources and when you chase them as if they are the end and you catch them and you find out that they aren't the rain the end of the rainbow they aren't even the rainbow they're just stuff then you it's very disappointing I've got time now, and I've got money, but I don't know why I have either one. The the one reason I can tell you the biggest reason why a uh, few dentists have time is because they wouldn't know what to do with it if they had it. They've never answered the question, why am I in dentistry? What am I doing this for? What do I want out of this? What's my legacy? Uh, what's my impact in the world around me? What kind of father do I want to be? What kind of uh, community member do I want to be? Those are the questions... You, I had well. I can just tell you very quickly when I was when I was young, I had the opportunity to interview a lot of CEOs who were retiring, and I asked them what would they do differently. And not some all of them said things like, "I would have smelled the roses," "I would have had a lifelong hobby," "I would have spent more time with my kids," "I'd have built more relationships," "I'd have been a more uh, involved member in my community." Not a single one of them said, "I wish I'd have spent more time in the office, closed more deals." Or made more money. And I think there's something in that for us. We we don't, we don't just assume the industrial age taught us, chase the time and the money. No, no. Let's chase the end. And then let's use the time and the money as the resources they are to get us what we want. What do you want out of life? Build a dental practice that will give you that. And that could be a huge dental practice. It could be a very small one. It's not about that. It's about what do you want and then figure out what you Want to build to reflect that.
0: And you're also not chasing someone else's dream or vision. so that a lot of dentists want the cookbook. Like, I want what you have. Well, why do you want it? Well, because it will free me. Well, it possibly won't free you. Nope. Dental practice is an expression of your own vision. You may want to be an associate. There's nothing wrong with that. There's wonderful associateship opportunities where you could just do the dentistry and not have to worry about Cindy the hygienist running out in tears. There, there's, there's it's, it's all about what you want. And the greatest hell on earth is to get everything you ever wanted and still be unfulfilled. What do you do with that? That's the story of the Robin Williams or the guy from Lincoln Park. You know, Robin Williams is like I want to be I want to win an Academy Award for being funny. Okay, I got that. I want to be I want to win an Academy Award for being a dramatic actor because I just don't want to be a clown. Gets that? He gets everything. He walks around the world and people say to him, I love you. Mm-hmm. I love you. You're the reason why I became a doctor from Patch Adams. He gets everything he ever wanted and dies an unfulfilled life in his bathroom with a belt strap. And that's the reality of this chase of the have and do You know, if I just had this or had that, I see it all over chat rooms, and I chime in. I get torched by a lot of dentists because misery loves company. You know, like how do I get out of practice? How do I do this? Patients don't care. Well, do you care? And every time you're pointing a finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you. So I'm really happy we talked about that artifact, the industrial age, because we've been sold a bunch of goods and it's bullshit, and we're all hooked on the same mantra of just one.
2: And just one real quick addendum to that. For people listening to this who are over the age of 50, and especially 60, but even 50, 45, 50, 55, it's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, a difficult thing. They, they might be drawing a blank on what do you mean by a big why, a, a personal purpose, a lifetime goal? It's, it's something that was stripped out of us by the industrialists. You never ask why. Even though why is the most human of questions, if you ask it, you were considered a rebel, an outcast. Uh, misfit and so we were actually taught not to ask the most human of questions why am i doing this to the point where it's for for people who are in their 50s or above this is actually more difficult the older you are the closer you are to having grown up in the industrial age the more difficult this concept is that i should actually be doing this for a reason i need to use my practice to build my lifetime goals, not the other way around. Too often we're used, and that's the reason we—it's—it's—it's it's a mystery to us, and we can help uh, demystify it.
0: And the cycle—the cycle of being used translates into using other people.
2: Yeah. So
0: when you feel abused and used by your office, you tend to treat your employees differently, and you come from that whole lack mentality, and the cycle of shittiness ensues. Um. And and I also, Chuck, I want you to touch on. Uh, Peter, actually, I cut you. So, so jump in,
1: Peter, if you don't mind. Well, really, I was wanting to touch back. I I think this is 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 fascinating because I think that a lot of people have that goal line mentality where you know it's like when when I get there, that's when I'll be happy, and I've been guilty of that myself. I've obtained things, you know, and been like, wait, that's it. And it does feel a little unfulfilling, but I, because of the fact, like you said, I didn't stop and kind of enjoy the roses along the way. I thought there was a big pile of roses at the end. So now I've kind of consciously and purposely and intentionally made myself like enjoy the process of doing stuff. Otherwise, just what, what's the point of doing it? So you had mentioned earlier, Chuck, something about the, you know, getting off the treadmill and, and sometimes people are trying to build practices or get what Craig has, like a practice like that for kind of all the wrong reasons. Um, can you talk about like, because obviously there's some, there is some motivation to getting off of the treadmill for a lot of dentists, a lot of burnout. Like Craig knows, he has a history with me that I, you know, I pretty much experienced burnout in 2015, almost quit dentistry for a whole lot of kind of external reasons. Um, you know, some was clinical burnout. Some was just practice management burnout. Some was the fact that just life was just happening to me at, at you know, an unperfect storm, if you will. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the ingredients necessary for fulfilling that tread, getting off the quote unquote treadmill? I know you guys are kind of into the summit, you know, the get off the treadmill summit, but can you talk about some of the components that, you know, some of the raw ingredients that need to be there for dentists? So if that's what they want, they can start yeah. kind of f- filling in the pieces.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Every three months we do a, a, a got summit, a get off the treadmill summit for dentistry. Again, our only, our only uh, market is dentists. We, Craig and I are working together. We really, truly want to transform dentistry and the way we approach it, that there's things that we feel are fundamentally broken that came out of the industrial age, that came out of dental school, that that handicap us in our mindset that that don't need to be there. And when we see dentists change their view of this stuff, the way they do dentistry changes. So, uh you hit on one it was it's another of the eight diseases of the industrialization that is retirement the three most poisonous words we can ever use mm-hmm. is when i retire because mm-hmm. who says you're going to get to you know i i got friends who died at 40 uh, my my two cousins died at, in the early 40s of of heart attacks and the average age after death or after retirement during the Industrial Age was eighteen months. It's up now, but it's still pretty low. I
1: think it's five years my, actually now.
2: Yeah, in my second book, I uh, I, I have a, a subchapter called "Death by Golf." The statistics show that when people who retire at fifty are more likely to die at sixty than people who retire at seventy are to die at even or who retired sixty are to die at even seventy. When you stick a fork in us, we're done mentally. When we when we leave that uh, when we leave our our ability to come and do something meaningful every day, we check out and, it, and we die. There, there is no separation between the mind and the body. If your mind is done, so is your body. So we need tools to help us figure that out. And one of the things we talk about, again, is the business owner's game and the seven stages of, of practice ownership. And it's about how do I begin to get a great life now? Don't wait until you retire. If you're 32 and you're hearing this, you can get a great life by the time you're 37. If you're 62 and hearing this, you can probably get a a great life in here because you have so much built around you. You just need to switch some, some very simple things and begin to get a life out of this. Don't wait until you retire. That is the... The, uh, it's such an industrial age lie. We actually think it, it retirement is a, a normal thing. <laughs> Otto von Bismarck, re, he invented retirement in like 1882 or 1883 to get old people off the machines. Mm-hmm. And they all rioted. Because they knew it was wrong. And we hated retirement until after World War II, until somebody repackaged it, had the brilliant idea of repackaging it as we are going to now replace work with play instead of replacing work with nothing. And that became attractive. Well, guess what? We've had a number of generations try that. Here's the statistics. 75% of the people over the age of 65 are going back to work and only about 18% of them because they think they have to because they need more money when they probably don't. We uh, are meant to live every day of our life fulfilled, and we we are not equipped yet to figure this out, and it starts when you're 10 or 15 or 20. Here's a mind-boggling statistic, guys. Two-thirds of all the people who have ever made it to the age of 65 in the history of the earth Two thirds of anyone who's made it to sixty-five is alive right now. Wow, growing older, <laughs> growing older is crazy. New, isn't That's, that bizarre? It's
0: mind-boggling if you stop to really compute that. Since the dawn two-thirds, of time, we,
2: since, since the, the dawn of time, two thirds of everyone who has ever made it to sixty-five is alive right now.
0: So essentially, we don't know what the hell to do with sixty-five-year-olds from a historical perspective. We're finding out know, now. Like,
2: and, and as a result of that, Craig, we don't know what to do with a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old right. because what we're doing is we're, we're waiting to this, this thing that comes later called retirement, but we don't know. I mean, it's so screwed up. The, the first person, scientists say the first person who is going to live to the age of 150 has already been born. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what to do with this idea of, of being around longer. For thousands of years, the number one motivation was survival. And now we're getting into an age where we can actually begin to ask questions about significance. The participation age is what we call this, and it's the age of significance. That's why uh, so many older people throw stones at millennials because they think they're lazy. No, no, they just don't want a job because a job is designed simply to get money to pay the bills. They want work because work is is meaningful and it goes beyond just paying the bills it's a reason to go and be something and to, uh, to contribute and to have a legacy they were born outside of the shadow of the industrial age and they're not putting up putting up with shut up sit down don't make waves live invisibly and go out quietly with a gold watch it's hmm. not the way we were built hmm. We're made to, we're not made to, to be and to do something significant the first two life years, uh, first two thirds of our lives and then go out to past year. We've got to figure out how do we live a significant life until we're 70, 80, 90, 120. It doesn't mean going into the office every day, but it does mean reorienting the way we, we, we develop our practice and we think of our practice when we're 42 because it's not about when you get to 65 it's about when you get to 43. I'll give you one example two guys who developed uh, a practice uh, 18 months 18 years they had uh, they had taken one week off each in 18 years and one of them read my book and they got a hold of me and within a year and a half they were both taking almost... Uh, 10 days a month off each, and they took a month in the summers. And after the guy, the, one of the partners took his first month off, he came back and I said, so what you, What'd you experience? And he said, well, having worked for 18 years straight, it, it, it was bizarre. He said the first seven, six or seven days, it was going so slowly. He just was dying. It's like, how am I ever going to survive 30 days of this crap? and he said by the middle of it he was really in the groove and then with about 8 days left he was saying how is it that there's only 8 days left how do i make the most out of these precious moments with my wife and my daughter they they rented a a, a place in Malibu to learn how to to spend an entire month learning how to surf and he said uh, when he got back he had one big blinding flash of the obvious he said i'm 40 i think he was 44 at the time i'm 44 and I could have spent the rest of my life chasing the money, thinking that that fast treadmill would have gotten me happy. And now I get I get the rest of my life. Every year I get to go for a month with my daughter and my wife, and I get to do this again and build those memories, that legacy, those relationships. Uh, there and their their uh, their practice is now uh, three times the size it was. So. That's a graphic example of what we're talking about. We need tools to understand how to change our mindset, to answer your earlier question. We need tools to, to change our mindset. Then we need practical tools in the business. And and having run 10 businesses, I'm not a career consultant. I'm a guy who's who's run these things. And so we've got... The tools to help people figure out how to lead and how to how to develop self-managed teams and kudos programs and peer incentive programs and and incentives in general and uh, how to run a meeting things that are really practical that you, yeah. these guys would learn at the Get Off the Treadmill Summit.
0: Yeah, that's what I love about the summit because it's actionable. And uh, for those of you who are listening are considering going. Uh, bring your key person. Maybe you don't have the hierarchy that a larger organization has, but there's somebody in your organization that acts like a stakeholder already. She might be an assistant or a hygienist or a front desk person, but you know who that person is. They actually care about the business beyond just the paycheck. Uh, and if you bring that person, you don't come back on Monday morning all like, you know, coming in hot, wired and ready for change and no one else has that buy-in. The most important person is not the leader, but the first follower. The first follower initiates a movement. If you think you're a leader and you look over your shoulder and you're just alone, you're actually going for a walk, you're not leading. So it's the first follower It's the key principle to this whole thing. If you have that stakeholder, someone who believes in your vision, bring them along and you will have actionable tools. I do not wish to be a consultant. People all the time call me and say, I want to pick your brand. I want to be a consultant. But I, I, I don't want to do that. That's not my wheelhouse. But if I can give you three or four days and help you make a difference for the rest of your life, I'm all about that. And everybody thinks they have a unique problem. You don't. We all have the same exact problem, just different flavors of the same problem. And and speaking of this idea about millennials, I, I dealt with – I was with a buddy of mine and he has a large flooring company. And he's like, these freaking millennials and blah, blah, blah. We need to, you know, they don't know how to do work. They don't have a work ethic. We need to fix them. Hey, good luck with that. How big is the millennial generation, Chuck? I mean, it's the largest generation since the baby boomers. You're not going to fix the millennials, which comes into the other disease of the industrial age that I think I'm, I hope I don't misquote this, but that people are inherently stupid or something to that effect.
2: Yeah, stupid and lazy.
0: Yeah, so that's the myth that I want you to talk about because there's so much chatter on the Facebook chat rooms that I'm on. How do you get your employees to be engaged? So if you don't mind, talk yeah. about engagement, the statistics, and that disease of the industrial that People are just freaking stupid. Go and into that.
2: This GOT Summit coming up in in, uh, in November, we're going to deal with those specifically and give you tools to deal with them. Here's the dirty laundry. We all know it. I follow this stuff on Gallup and Harris survey polls every month. 51% of or well let's start with this. 70% of people in your practice are phoning it in right now. Only 30% are engaged. The rest of them are just going through the motions. If you had a machine functioning at 30%, would you put up with that? No and hell no. You'd figure out how to fix it. You'd do everything possible to fix that machine before you replaced it because the replacement is expensive. But if it wouldn't if you couldn't get it to work, you'd get another one. Generally, we just put up with it and say, well, what are you going to do? Because everybody's the same. It's 30%. Well, we're going to show you where it can be 100%. Here's another rotten statistic. 51% of everyone at work right now in the entire United States is looking for a job, actively has their resume out. 51% of the people. you got 10 people in your practice. 5.1 of them are looking for a job right now. And 86% of people at work in the United States if they found something else that dropped in their lap, they're too lazy to go look because they're not engaged, would take it. Only 14% say, I found something I find meaningful and I'm not shopping. And if you offered me three other jobs, I wouldn't take them. So what is going on here? This is the human artifact of the industrial age. And it comes from this it comes from this idea that people are stupid and lazy. If people are stupid and lazy, there's only one way to fix that. You find the very few, the very rare, smart and motivated ones, and you put them in management, and you lord over the stupid and lazy ones and force them to work, and thus management was born. It's an adversarial relationship that strips people of their humanity because of the assumption most people actually aren't motivated unless I stand over them with a whip. The exact opposite is true. I can show you a hundred very large companies and thousands of smaller ones and dental practices where people have decided nobody's stupid and lazy. We don't actually even need managers in our practice anymore. Uh, we're working with one uh, one uh, practice that has four locations and no managers, and somehow they do just fine because they've given every they've rehumanized the workplace. They've given everybody their brains back. And they've, they've started with the assumption that people are smart and motivated. I know that sounds like a leap because we've been taught for 200 years that, that we need managers. Uh, but this is not new stuff. We've got decades of, of data that shows in companies as large as 10,000 people. W.L. Gore, the guys who make Gore-Tex, there's not a single manager in the whole place. Nobody can fire anybody. 65-year-old company, one of the best companies in the world to work for. On and on and on. And it comes from the the assumption that people are smart and motivated. A guy named Douglas McGregor wrote a book in 1960. Again, this is not new stuff. And his book was The Human Side of Enterprise. And he postulated theory X, theory Y. He took the old theory X, people are stupid and lazy, and said, if you believe that, then you will create a practice that that ends up where everybody is stupid and lazy. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you don't have any trust. You have this misperception that you have to manage them. So you create an organization where you invite in people to be stupid and lazy. Theory why people are smart and motivated. If you believe that, if you fundamentally believe that the overwhelming majority, and we believe it's around 81%, will actually respond to this, four out of five minimum will respond as smart and motivated. If you believe that, then that too is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you can create a great practice around people who are smart and motivated. And I can show you Craig Spodak's uh, uh, large practice with 50 plus people in it. And everybody there is smart and motivated. Everybody is engaged. There's no 30% engagement. It's a hundred percent. And anytime it falls below that, somebody gets, takes somebody else for a walk. The, the, the standard is eight to 10, not one to eight and it's really self-fulfilling prophecy if you believe people are stupid and lazy you will have a practice where you're putting up with one to eight if you believe people are smart and motivated you will create an organization around people being eight to ten and you'll put up with nothing less and either will they they will come to work and bring it all so i know it's a long sermon on that stuff but again we have the tools and the methodologies to help you figure out how to get your people who are at a three to be an eight a nine or attend and they and 80 plus percent of them want to do it and unfortunately we're the ones who have been holding them back
0: wow it's so so true so true by the way whatever your intention is and your belief is and that's not just woo-woo crap as chuck would say it's there's hard evidence there's a good ROI to this stuff peter and i are writing a book um and one of the chapters right now is about how to keep your Um, Your overhead down and we all know that the largest portion of your overhead is your staff salaries, but we don't talk about the fact that the one thing that will raise your staff salary overhead through the roof is by being a dick because if you don't care about your people and you're a dick, you're going to lose people. If you're not human and you don't care about them first, they're not going to stay with you. So you want to talk about the ROI of not having your your culture in place or believing that people are stupid and lazy. If you fundamentally believe that, you're going to have epic turnover and go into a profit-sucking experience that you probably not want to see.
2: Yeah, Craig, to to add to that, the two biggest other expenses in business are what we call, number one, the management tax – having people who are whose job it is is to hang out and supposedly by their hanging out they make other people productive so yeah. i'm going to come up with processes for you i'm going to lord over you i'm going to yell at you my job is i don't add anything other than to make you more productive with the assumption that when that happens i get a piece of that extra productivity as my salary you don't need those kinds of people in your practice. Again, I can show you hundreds of businesses where that's not true over the last 60-plus years. The data is in. It works better. Secondly, the biggest hidden cost in business is retraining, and and it's it costs you somewhere between 50% to 800% of someone's annual salary to, get, to have them leave and bring somebody else in. In these participation-age companies that we're talking about, uh, uh, retention is exponentially higher. Wegman's groceries. Wegman's groceries is a giant grocery. Thirty-eight percent is the normal turnover in a grocery. There's is two percent. W. L. Gore and uh, Semco. Semco is in manufacturing. Thirty-five percent is normal. Their turnover year to year is one percent, and there's not a single manager in the whole place.
0: And then, you- just for the just for the listeners, that's Gore Tex. Because off, yeah, so they, yeah. they understand.
1: What's the cost yes. of the turnover again? What was that? What was the number?
2: Somewhere between, depending on the job and depending on how involved your training is, somewhere between 50% of their annual salary. So if you paid them 40000 it's yeah. going to cost you twenty grand just to get somebody new to 800%. Okay. If I'm going
0: a- I'm, I'm to postulate, Chuck, that the percentages in dentistry are even higher. So when Joanne, your hygienist of two years, leaves – There's a relationship. You're talking about functionality of jobs that maybe someone works a computer and that that job may cost them 200% of their salary. These are relationships. Dentistry is a relationship in a service industry. So they don't just clean your teeth. You know about their kids and their dog and the vacation they went. So when you fracture that relationship, I mean people move and shit happens. But if it's because of something you could have controlled, that's even more costly.
2: Yeah, so it's going to happen here and there. The question is, how do we keep it to the lowest? And the answer to that is stop managing people. Figure out how to develop self-managed teams where people have metrics, they have results that they're supposed to get, and then they chase those things uh, at at 100% engagement, and they find all of that meaningful because they're playing the game now. You're not just telling them what to do. Let me give you a real quick uh, tidbit of stuff that you'll get out of the GOT Summit that helps you understand this. From the principal side of things, we want leaders, not managers. And one of the major differences is managers tell, leaders ask. Managers tell people what to do. Leaders invite people in to participate in a result and ask them how they're going to get that result. They give them their brain back and say, here's the result we need. Now you guys figure out how to get that. That's just one example of the and then we have tools and methodologies that that we work with specifically to help them get this stuff figured out.
1: Can can we uh, can I go back to one thing that I've been I'm sitting here wanting to talk about a little bit was I think the objective of the Got Summit and and kind of the services that you provide, Chuck, is is really um, it sounds to me like a lot more sustainability in the practice, right? Like a lot of dentists and and I was guilty of when I alluded to the burnout. Was, was just blowing and going, how much dentistry can I do? How much can I work? Because that's what I thought I should do, right? Right. And, but that obviously is an unsustainable model as my body has started to deteriorate, you know, in, with, you know, dentistry is pretty hard on your on your body, on your back, you know, on all sorts of your posture. And so that's not sustainable. So unfortunately, what I see is a lot is us going like balls to the walls and then quitting or getting injured or retiring. Right. And then- Or selling. Or selling, right? Because you just get so burned, you know all these things. So, and you don't have to have an answer to my question. I'm about to ask is, do you see, or what's been in your experience? uh, Let's say someone didn't have a goal for what they wanted to have from a sustainable model. Have you seen kind of a a a a good goal in your experience with with training folks? Like, what is a good goal for dentists to do? Like, yeah,
2: it's a great example. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, statistically dentistry is higher than the average business out here but I'll give you the morbid statistics. Uh, the average business fails in five years and the and the or eight, 50% fail in five years, 80% fail in 10 years and they actually don't fail. That is not reported correctly. What happens is the business owner gets tired and then as they get tired they stop watching the shop and things begin to deteriorate around them and the business fails or uh. they just get tired and sell or quit or something else but it I would say that 98% of the reason businesses fails because somebody got tired and it's because they had the right motivation and the wrong process. So the right motivation you hit on it, man. It's Peter, it's it's uh, I want to you know, I want to have a uh, I want to build something here. I want to have a life. But we think that the way to do that is to go balls to the walls and 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 actually do the treadmill stuff ourselves. Mm-hmm. We've got to learn how the answer is this. How do I go from income producer to business owner or to practice owner? If you are materially uh, necessary for uh, a a significant uh, minority or the majority of the revenue coming into your practice, then you're an income producer. Don't fool yourself. You don't own a practice. It owns you. Like
1: a glorified job kind
2: of. Yeah, it's a glorified job. You could have gotten that working for Giant Corporation Incorporated doing Mm -hmm. dentistry. What we got to figure out is how do we get you to the point where this thing is continuing to grow so that it goes balls to the walls mm-hmm. while you are being strategic as a leader or doing whatever it is you want to do, doing dentistry but not feeling the pressure of that or feeling uh, – being the leader and the CEO of this practice and not do it, doing dentistry or a combination of both. What is it you would want to do? But the question is – the bigger question is why do you own a practice? And the assumption, again, in the industrial age is I own a practice so that I can make money because if I make money, I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. we got to back out of there and start over. Why do you own a life? What is it you want out of this? And then once you figure that out, there's three resources we need, time, money, and energy. And your practice is going to either steal them or it's going to give them back. So once I figure out, here's what I want out of life. I want a legacy as a human being. I want to know that I contributed. Uh, you know, the 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 uh, path to immortality is paved by contribution. What am I contributing to the world around me? Mm-hmm. I want to know that I was a great dad. It doesn't have to be a giant. You don't have to solve world hunger. That's not necessarily a big why. That's somebody's big why. But your big why is something that's so continuous you can never check it off as complete. So that's one of the other things we talk about in the GOT Summit is what are the – What are the things that can motivate you the rest of your life? You'll never be able to check them off as complete. That was part of the lie. I need a $10 million house. Okay, you got a $10 million house. Check. All of a sudden, it's no longer motivating Right. because you don't have it anymore. Things that we've attained no longer motivating. So we've got to figure out how to get the big why, which is continuous, and then say, okay, how do we redesign the way we do dentistry so that I can get that? Warren, we call this uh, uh, Warren Buffett disease. You know, Warren Buffett doesn't suffer from the need and the guilt complex to have to be there every day making chairs. He understands that he has a strategic position. His importance is figuring out how do we move forward on the next thing? What should we – what's our next product? What's our next strategy? We need someone all consumed by leadership mm-hmm. to be able to do that kind of stuff. And you need to be figuring out what is the highest and best use of your time. Is it in the chair? Is it in the the strategic function? What is it? Let's get you to that. And there's a series of steps that we can take people through to get them
1: there. Or maybe a hybrid of that. You know, sometimes people get consumed with like, well, it's either get out of the chair completely or be in the chair. But like there's a hybrid situation, you know, and I'm I'm kind of in that
0: hybrid situation. We're both both in that hybrid situation, Peter. So that's that's a good piece of advice. Yeah, Exactly. So, so therein lies the fulfillment. It's not like you know people think I have to be free of this. They feel like they're shackled by something. You could just reorganize it so that you can create the time you want. We both enjoy dentistry, but if you do it at the expense of everything else, it's going to consume you. So there's that 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 hybrid concept is a way out of it. People just see it in black and white. Let me build it and sell it. What the hell are you going to do when you sell it, Mm -hmm. Craig?
2: What we find? Oh, go ahead. and Finish. Sorry. And
0: by the by the way. If you want to sell your business, it's probably because it doesn't work for you. It doesn't work well. So you have this idea, let me get it working well so that I can sell it. And lo and behold, you get it working well and like, oh shit, I don't have to be here. You don't want to sell it. So if the the person buying it, the way they're going to make it work for them is to say, OK, Dr. Jones, you're going to now work for 20 percent of your gross production and they're going to inherently get the 15 percent profitability from it that you want to get yourself. So they're going to make you the instrument of your labor and make it profitable. So So you can actually make it – work for you and not even want to sell it
2: Craig, that's so insightful because that's one of the things we work with business uh practice uh, owners to begin with is help them understand when they say hey i want to just grow this thing to four million and get the blankety blank out of here the reason they want to get the blankety blank out is the darn thing's killing them so we continue to work with them and we start getting closer to that we say hey just to remind you we're you know we're building this so that you can get out of here and a lot of times usually what happens is they would say what are you crazy i'm having too much fun why would i want to sell this right the reality of it is the business that anybody would want to buy is the one you shouldn't want to sell Uh, unless you're you know like i said you are about to to be done with dentistry that's a different thing but we're taught in dentistry on the business on the practice management side of dentistry we're taught two polar opposites one is you need to just create a faster treadmill. We're going to come in. We're going to teach your front office how to uh, acquire more new patients and how to get your hygienists to get people through faster. We're going to make you more money. And as a result, you as the dentist will be busier as one of the uh, – or as the only producer. That's one opposite, one polar opposite. Then the other polar opposite is, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to teach you how to be the CEO and get you out of the chair. And for a lot of dentists, that's not attractive. They love being in the chair. Well, let's figure out what is the right thing for you. It might be one of those polar opposites or like for you guys or for me, it's a hybrid of the two. I never want to stop delivering our stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't, want to be, I don't want to have to do it. What, what if you were free to do dentistry and you didn't have to or you were free to lead? but you didn't have to. So let's figure out what is the highest and best use of your time and then take the 25 or 30 tools and methodologies that we've developed and pick the ones that work for you. And let's get those in your practice. It's sort of like a quiver full of arrows. You mentioned earlier, Craig, that, you know, everybody wants a step one, a one, two, three, here's how you do things. Well, we've got, Twenty-five or thirty arrows, and we'll pull them out, and we'll assemble a one, you know, a step one, two, three. But it's going to be the one that works for you, because you may not need everything we have uh, in order to offer.
1: One uh, one thing I want to talk about right at this juncture, because I think it's you were talking about kind of the not wanting to sell when you get to that position where the bu- business is actually thriving and working for you. One of the things, one of the books that I always recommend when I do a presentation to people, there's kind of four that I kind of love you pick, but one is called Built to Sell. I'm sure you know it by John John Worlow, and that uh-huh. categorically changed my my mentality when I read that book. But, you know, and I've I've I don't know if it was on our podcast, Craig, but on other people's podcasts, I've actually talked about how the fact that, you know, this guy had this business and all he wanted to do was sell it, you know, grow it up and sell it, you know. And like you've told, said, Chuck, all businesses are pretty much the same at, 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 a, at a binary level or at or a granular level. Yeah. Right. And so basically the the, the consultant or the, whoever he was working for, the practice broker or the business broker said, all right, I'll help you sell it, but right now it's not worth anything because you're, you're the key component yep. of that job, yep. right? And so, you know, this guy Alex, who's the who's the he owns a marketing business and then he said, "Look, let the the broker said, "Let me work with you and help you get some systems and process and clean the business up and then we can sell it." And so basically the, and the moral of the story is by the time he got to the place where the business was profitable, things were up. He was happy and didn't want to get out anymore. Right. You yeah. know, and so that was a great, you know, that book came out in probably 2011. I read it and I was like, "Wait a second. This is like this is it. This is the whole. This is the Holy Grail of kind of business. You know.
2: I'm telling you, Peter. There's so much we learn from the industrial age that is wrong, and that's another one. Grow or die. Mm-hmm. Who taught us that? Well, it's a giant corporation thing. If you don't continue to grow, then your investors are going to go somewhere else. So you grow, even at the expense of your future. Ironically, you will do anything you can to look good for the next three months. Mm-hmm. Grow or die. Grow or die. Grow or die. Well, who made that rule? How about if you figure out what you want? Uh, and I like, um, I'm like. i speaking with Bo Burlingham later this month, and he wrote a, one of his first, I think his first book was uh, Small Giants. And I recommend that to every practice owner that I work with, small giants. He basically challenges the idea, grow or die, who made that freaking rule? How about if you figure out what would actually serve you, build that, and then uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the life that it gives you and the legacy it's building for you and the practice that it is?
0: Wow, that's beautiful, huh? So simple and, and so simple. Yeah, but all not this a,
2: stuff is simple. I want to it, say that, Craig. That's important. This stuff sounds, uh, sorry, uh, maybe woo woo crappish. It's not. It's hardcore success strategy. But the problem is, this all sounds simple. It is. It's just not easy. Right. Being a leader is actually simple but it's not easy. Figuring out how to develop a self-managed team is really simple, but it's the follow-through, it's the persistence, it's the mindset and continuing to keep ourselves We have this this problem you mentioned earlier on the tyranny of the urgent where life comes at us all day long and wants to throw us off the priority of the important. And that's the hard part. It's not this isn't complex anything. If anybody comes to you with a complex solution for what you're experiencing, it's probably a bad solution as well as being hard. We need simple solutions. That doesn't make them easy. I'm not going to sit here and say that this is nirvana, and it's a one, two, three-step process, and when you leave the GOT Summit, everything's going to be fixed. No, you're going to have the right mindset, and you're going to have the tools. We're going to begin to develop the tools with you to get you there. It's all very simple. If it's not simple, we shouldn't be teaching it. That doesn't make it easy. You
0: You know what the – The funny thing is the dentists that are listening and all of us, Peter and myself are guilty of it. You know, Peter came, when you came to visit me and we we hung out, you left and I I was feeling really bad about my own position, comparing myself to what Peter's got. And uh, it, it created a little bit of pain around you know what he's created because he's very he checks his numbers, he's very careful with his business practices and I'm all like kinda woo-woo, like make sure everybody's happy and feed him lunch every day. And I think the relationship that Peter and I have is hybridized the two of us as well. Uh-huh. So I'm um, I'm definitely more like Peter in creating benefit for my business, which is also taking good care of my people. Because let's face it, if you ignore your numbers long enough you're actually gonna shaft your people. And, and he's seeing some things from me. So the funny thing is, is that dentists will diagnose what they need. So they don't come to you and say, hey, Chuck, I'm unfulfilled. Hey, Craig, hey, Peter, I'm unfulfilled. Help me out. It's like I need marketing. It's very surgical. I need a marketing campaign. Hey, right. Peter, can you? can I pick your brain over your employment retention program? Well, shit, I don't have one. But it's, every, it's everything. So what you really need is a holistic change, a holistic change in your intentionality of what you want to create because we're all just like lab mice running towards the sugar cube, like just for the boost of sugar. We're all stuck in this – bullshit labyrinth of of chasing something but happiness as we know is in the action of solving problems happiness is not a mythical destination it's the action of solving problems and problems are always going to exist but what chuck's talking about is elevating the quality of your problem from how the fuck do I pay my bills to how do I work on fulfillment? You know what I was just they're, thinking
1: they're, of, as you're saying this, Craig? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but this is like, I bet a lot of the people who go to the Got Summit or who are clients of yours, Chuck, are probably our age or a little later in their career. But how cool would it be if you had gained this insight in the inception yeah. of your career and like oh said, Look, like, I was just thinking, like, God, I wish I had heard this stuff. Can you imagine? Like, that should be like, oh, no, the focus I can't, is going man. to young guys and be like, look, here's the real goal. Don't listen to all the BS that you've been told, you know, or here's the real way it should work. Man, how, how, it would have been a total different path. Well, I don't know. I'm just, I was just sitting here thinking that, like, I'm sure that it's all like 40, 50 year old guys in the audience being like, how do I fix it? And, yeah. and there could have been a place when it was never broken to begin with but if you had started when you were 26. Well, well, Peter, that's our job. That's our <laughs>
0: job because young guys are looking and saying, why are you saying that shit? You have right. seven, six locations that are like you know, epic. You have the thing I want to build. So that's where we come in because the young guys won't listen to Chuck. Oh, he's a business guy. Oh, yeah, he's a business guy. They, you need to have a certain amount of pain, either pain of improvement or pain of like life sucks mm-hmm. to actually want to take a deep look at it all. So that's where it's really effective that you and I are on these podcasts and writing the book and doing this stuff because they're like, why are you guys talking about that? You're at the top of the food chain. And the fi- the fact of the matter is you'll get yourself to the top of the food chain and have the same lack of fulfillment that's potentially possible for the guys that are starting their career. Wow.
2: Yeah, it's why it's why we at the summit, Craig, uh, or Peter, it's why we at the summit, uh, I'll share the principles and I'll talk about how to develop the tool and then we'll put Craig or somebody from his practice up front and say here's how we actually do this uh, so that they get the practical hands-on because uh, it is an excuse people use that my business is unique i hear that from everybody but i don't hear it any less from dentists i probably hear it more dentists we've even had uh, pediatric dentists who say well you don't understand me because you work with with the general dentists and pediatric dentistry is unique so we all suffered from that—that that thought that we had that, but it does help to be able to share. Here's the tools. Here's how it's worked for the last six years in dentistry, and here's somebody who's actually doing it. Let's—you you know, you, can—you can pepper this doctor with your questions.
0: Yep. Good
1: stuff. Yeah, Good that stuff. Was awesome. That was awesome. I mean, yeah. yeah. I told you, Peter. Chuck's a man. <laughs> he is. He is. I dig that. That was cool. I got nothing else, man, and I feel like I've just been like I've been sitting here kind of auditing everything personally as you've been talking, Chuck. So well, let
2: me add, let me add, let me finish this off with a, a question and a quote. We've been talking about these things the whole time, uh, and maybe maybe a, a bit of advice that I that I wish uh, you know twenty twenty hindsight I wish I had when I was twenty thirty or forty. I think most of us tend to make decisions based on the short term. And that is the number one issue in our lives is that we're not making decisions based on the long term, but on the short term, whatever the decision is. So the question is this. Are you making decisions based on where you are or on where you want to be? Hmm. And if you're making decisions based on where you are, where do you think you're going to be next year? You can't afford to wait. There's always a time we've had one one practice with five locations put us off now three months then another three months and another three months because it wasn't the right time to engage. Guess what? There isn't one. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be the right time to engage. Are you are you are you making decisions based on where you are or on where you want to be? So the wrong thing to think is, hey, this all sounds interesting. Someday I'm going to. Wouldn't it be nice if I sure hope that. That's all uh, putting it off. Let's figure out what we want and let's chase it. And then the, the quote I'd, I'd, I'd leave us with is something we've been talking about the whole time. Craig's been using this word intention the whole time. I've said this for maybe 15 years now. You get what you intend, not what you hope for. And too often we, 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 we employ the random hope strategy of practice. I'm going to work my ass off and I hope something good happens. Stop hoping, hoping and let's figure out what we actually want and let's be intentional about making that happen. You get what you intend, not what you hope for.
0: Wow. And, and as far as that intention thing goes, Chuck, when you look at about the results, the results of any endeavor, mechanics and intention, 90% is the intention and 10% is mechanics. And we you as scientists our dentist, the dentist factor. We want the mechanics. Yes, this podcast was great. Yes, I listened to the whole thing. Tell me the goddamn formula now. You know, it's like (laughs) we just can't help it. Like that was great. That was. I'm not going to say this was bad use of my time. That was a great use of an hour of my time. But, 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 can I just pick your brain about the marketing? I just need to know the mechanics. That intentionality is so important, and you get the life you intend. It doesn't just happen. You know, you want to. You want to have like you look at a really fit person. They're really fit. They have an intention for their fitness. They have rituals, behaviors that do it. You ask a person that's fat as hell how how to get an exercise, they don't even have the intention. Well, I guess I got to go buy shoes and I got to get a sweatband and I got to get a, uh, you know, I guess I'd have to go drive around and see a different gyms and one that's close to my house and they make it so big. Other people are just like, you know what? I wake up, I roll over my running shoes or in your case, Chuck, you're a big avid biker. My biking shit's there and before you even have the sleepy crap out of your eyes, you're on the bike. It's just yeah. that's your you have an intention for mm-hmm. right. I mean, what's your intention for biking this year? How many miles? Eleven thousand. I mean, holy shit! And it just rolls off your tongue. Oh, well. It's not like I want to bike a lot. A bike bike. <laughs> I, I want I want to bike two thousand seventeen. I'm going to bike a lot. What does that mean for me? That's three miles because I don't yeah. bike for shit now. But he's ele-
2: found, ha- found out a lot is not a number.
0: <laughs> right, but that's how dentists and people are going through. I want a lot of patients. I want yeah. a lot of money okay you want more money here's a dollar you're done yeah. So there's no intention about all this stuff but people
2: <laughs> do it. people do yeah. it right away they're like there's no intention um, yeah. yeah so so let's give them let's give them the I know we were supposed to be done but let's give them the first step in the formula since we want to we want a magic formula we can give them the first one and the first one is you got to change your mindset. You got to change from being an income producer to a business owner, from the tyranny of the urgent to the priority of the important, from uh, from assuming that having a lot of money by itself is going to figure this out. You've got to figure out why you want to be in business and in practice, and change the way you approach this whole thing. and And uh, and your intention is the first thing that has to change, and unless that changes, nothing else will change.
0: Oh, but Amen. that's so hard, Chuck. I can't believe you're asking people to do that. <laughs> oh no, I'm a, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna, you know, read the book and maybe go to the back three pages and hopefully I can figure out the widget. The widget. Just,
2: it's not hard at all if you want something bad enough. Oh yeah, you.
0: well yeah, look at I mean the people that are not getting the results they want in their life and practice, look at other areas that they're masterful at. Everybody's got an example of mastery. Everybody. There's people that are failing out of their dental practices, but they're kick ass fathers. They're amazing fathers, but that was their intention. Like my dad was a jackass, and I'm not going to repeat that or whatever their motive is. I mean if your life sure. dependent on it, it's important enough to you, you'll manifest it and make it happen. Absolutely. Everybody has ma- examples of mastery in their life. We could go on for three hours, Chuck. I Absolutely. Uh, you're a blessing to me personally, and I mean that in, in the literal sense of the word. I feel like you're a blessing in my life and the lives of the and the lives I've I've helped influence through your your knowledge and expertise, and um, it's it's been a real pleasure to help spread this message to dentistry because we deserve it. It's a wonderful profession, and the people here are doing good things. And and we just need some leadership and a new perspective.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Let's uh, let's get the, uh, let's transform dentistry. Let's let's yeah. figure out a different way to do this. Figure out a better way to do it, and uh, spread the word.
0: And in closing, Peter, too, let's make sure that we have the uh, website for the Get Off the Treadmill Summit. We are intentionally keeping it really small. This is not the 100 or 150-person lecture because really the magic is in the masterminding and the personal sharing. Mm -hmm. And I've just found that the larger lectures, you don't have that personal connection, and we need that connection. We need to learn from each other. So we're keeping it intentionally very small. And the goal, of course, is to have it sold out for years in advance and have a waiting list and, and if they could see the value of what we've provided in the last couple, it's incredible. People are thanking us and it's massive value and it's actionable information. It's yeah, not I'm pun- pontification.
2: I'm terrible at selling this stuff but uh, I've had too many people after our few uh, after our past uh, got summits come up to me and say this is the best thing I've ever attended in dentistry bar none and I've been to everything. So uh, I'm not saying that. That's what other people have said and we believe it's great because Uh, something will actually change when you're done.
0: Yep. Good stuff. Peter, anything for you? No. You
1: want to extend it another hour? Seriously. I mean, (laughs) I I could. I just, uh, man, this is awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Chuck, for your time today. That was was amazing. Thank
2: you. This was a lot of fun. Let's keep going.
1: Yeah, man. Yes, sir.
0: All right, guys. Signing out. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much. Bye Bye. Have a great one. Thanks so much for listening to
1: Bulletproof Dental Practice with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak.
2: Online at bulletproofdentalpractice.com. We'll catch you next time.